0: This is an ABC podcast. How's that? Bad. It's a
1: bit slippy still. Yeah. But it's like a...
2: The recording that you're listening to is in Delhi, India, on the banks of the Yamuna River, one of the most polluted waterways in the world. And I'm with Dr Ruth Gamble, an environmental historian from Latrobe University. So, this river can't be too bad, given all this wildlife and bird sanctuary and what have you going on. Can it?
1: Yeah, we didn't take you to the other bit, <laughs> we maybe should have taken you to the bit where there's all the foam coming up right? Yeah. Because Okay so basically down there there's the Oida barrage, it backs up the water and when you've got more water it fakes it into thinking that it's a, a healthy type of river.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but if you went further upstream it would be less water and you'd see more pollution right? and there's another barrage like that at the north of Delhi so this is the south of Delhi and if you go to the water just below that that's when you see all of that kind of mad foam and I mean this isn't clean when it's up in the mountains it really is very clean and then it comes down and hits the plains there's a massive irrigation system there that almost takes almost all of the water out of the system and then between the barrage in the north of Delhi and this one that's just down here making the river look pretty, is um, 12 sewerage outlets that no international health organisation thinks are operating at their right capacity. There's no drinkable water sources on the plains in India. It's either got agricultural pollution in it and then on top of that you've got all the manufacturing in the city of have 30 million plus people in Delhi.
2: Mm. So all the water that's got to come from the Himalayas get down to here in Delhi Mm. and all that's going on in between Mm. it sounds like there could be better management for it to be in in better condition more usable condition
1: I don't think it's ever going to get back to being in drinking water condition Mm. Um, but you could use it for other things
2: hello and welcome to future tense I'm Matt Smith and today on the program a health check on the Himalayas a warming climate is changing the Himalayas faster than any other region in the world And the mountain glaciers, source of the rivers of Asia, are melting. The drainage basin of these rivers support roughly 600 million people across countries such as India, China, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal and Bhutan. And all of these countries compete to use the Himalaya for territory, water and natural resources.
3: There are very few towns settled along the river. People live on the ridges. But one of the first big projects in Sikkim was Tista Stage 5 that came out at a uh, place called Dikchu, the dam. Now, Dikchu is a river that feeds into the Teesta at that spot. So the village gets its name from there. It's kind of like a trading town.
2: This is Pema Doji, the consulting editor of Sikkim newspaper, Summit Times.
3: Dikchu means the fast flowing or the sprightly, the noisy mm. river. People offer prayers by the river bank. The Hindus, Buddhists, everyone does. So if you drove in, right? So when you're driving in, when you cross the t over the bridge mm. from one bank to the other, so I found a monk with an entire family standing behind him on the bridge praying. So they have this ritual in Buddhism where you rescue animals which are destined to be killed for food. So fish, picked up a bucket of fish or whatever from the fish market and they were releasing it into the water. Now earlier they would do it uh, by the river bank. The entire family and the monk would be at the river bank and they would pray and they would release the fish into the water. Mm. So I said, isn't this too high, dropping it from the bridge? They said, we can't access the bank anymore because there's a reservoir there, there is no beach anymore. Mm. So they do it from the bridge and I, I don't think the fish survive the fall. This family did it this year. Next year they will probably not even bother. I think the human, the environment, the social costs have not really been addressed adequately enough.
2: To get a sense of the Himalaya, Ruth Gamble and I take a trip to changu Lake. The lake is 3,753 meters above sea level, frozen during the winter months, and as close as a foreigner can get to the Chinese border. How far away are we from from China, from Tibet here? Like from here to like Natula border is like the nearest international border, 15 kilometers. Oh, we could walk that. Now we can. Go this to is Beijing blessing. Our, our guide on the trip. Like, he is oh, from no, Nepal no, no, and speaks today, six languages. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a lot of uh, interaction between the the Sakim side and the, and the Tibet side through here? Is there is there trade going on? Is there things like that?
3: Yeah, actually, there's a like they have a trade route. There's a one place called Serathang. Yeah, they have to exchange the goods between China and India.
2: So they've got a place where they pull up together and just like swap things out of the trucks, do they?
3: Yeah, they have uh, like a uh, like market up there yeah. called Seretang. The Chinese goods will come up from the like, Chinese side and the Indian go up and they, use, they will meet there. And they actually stay good and they come back.
2: <laughs> Tell me about the watershed and how important this environment is to the South Asian region?
1: We're sitting in the eastern Himalaya and uh, we're in the basin of the uh, Brahmaputra River. Mm. So Kanchenjunga Mountain is actually the watershed between the Ganga and the Brahmaputra River. And the snow that falls, the rain and snow that falls all around here, descends down through uh, Sikkim and through the plain states of Assam and West Bengal in India, down into Bangladesh. In the whole basin, there's supposed to be about 600. 50 million people Yeah, right. uh, are Dependent on this one river And then you have the Ganga Which is just the other side Of Kanchenjunga And then further over From that You have the Indus River Basin Most of the water From there flows Into Pakistan Yeah And Pakistan gets 60% of its water From the Himalaya
2: And then you've got The people over The China side Yeah, so then as well. So
1: behind us yeah. We've got other mountains Myanmar Southeast Asia Laos sure. and, yep, and yep. Thailand yep. They all depend on Water that comes From the eastern Himalaya mm. So there's like this arc that goes from Beijing to Karachi in Pakistan and it all depends on Himalayan water.
2: So can you quantify how many people are we talking here? Like 1.6 conservatively? In South Asia
1: it's probably 1.6. R-
2: relying on a one yeah. watershed.
1: And then if you go from Beijing to Karachi, it's about 40% of the world's population. And because of the way the world economy is working at the moment, also about 20% of the world's economy is based in the Himalayan River Valleys.
2: Wow. And it's a really fragile environment. That's concerning.
1: Yeah. i got to say, personally, it hits me most when I'm actually in the environment because I love this place. Yeah. And in some ways, it's almost too hard to conceptualise the threat to the really large population.
2: If I could run through it a bit with you, when we were in delhi at the uh, at the start of this program mm. we saw a very polluted w- river we saw a yeah. very polluted city yeah as we traveled up here we saw hydroelectric dams mm-hmm. across the water and a very ordinary looking river yeah it was really sad needed a hug yeah needs a holiday
1: yeah uh, <laughs>
2: and 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 then you know as we came up here further there's military presence here because we're close to china there's roads and infrastructure that have been built as a result of this very self-aware military science saying we've only got one planet yeah everybody's competing to use what seems to be an environment on life support
1: yeah you're kind of looking at different things intersecting right so from a global perspective underpinning it all is climate change yeah we're looking down at a lake below us that shrunk by about a foot we're dealing with changes in the climate so rain's falling instead of snow and it's coming down in chunks And then on top of that, you have a few things happening. So you have China and India developing at a really fast pace. Yeah. Um, My favorite statistic in this regard is that China has used more concrete in the past three years than the United States did in the past hundred years. Yeah. Um, So you're dealing with things happening really fast that are transforming the environment in almost like some weird experiment that we don't know the outcome for. That development is being underpinned by the fact that we're next to a contested international border.
2: Yeah. Um, So you have
1: army infrastructure. Then you also have the general development going really fast. Uh, Some of that based on tourism, some of that based on uh, the idea that the Indian state has that if it pumps development money into the borders, uh, that will keep the people happy. Yeah. And then on top of that, you have a market that's kind of gone out of control in this uh, region without any checks on the environmental damages. People react to the grossest elements of that environmental change so that it's really in their face. So the signs for the army, I would have said that they're aimed at the tourists because this area had a massive plastic hmm. pollution issue as well um, and it was destroying tourism. The people in the region got together and banned the plastic and the army helped them to ban the plastic. Okay. But the army isn't actually dealing with as well as it could uh, with other underlying issues. Hey Matt, yeah. that's a glacier.
2: Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: over to the side, there's like a massive glacier coming down.
2: It's coming out of the clouds. So. That's
0: your first glacier. So. <laughs> so I'm Dr. sandesha Raipa and I'm working in JNU, Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. I'm from the state of Uttarakhand and my community's name is Rang. The place is called Dharchula, that's the town.
2: So what has your village's experience been with development in the Himalayas? You rolled your eyes. So explain to me what you mean by an eye roll.
0: Two words that kind of scare me these days, as far as my community is concerned is, uh, one is development and the other one is tourism. I have gone to my own hometown this year four times. I'm seeing the blasting of the Himalayas. And if you ask them, why do you need to widen the road? So obviously they want the army uh, big, huge trucks to come in. Where the roads are already there, do we really need to blast the Himalayas to widen them up? Why should development be taking place at the cost of the people's environment? Wherever tourism has gone, particularly if it's not controlled properly, they've actually ended up screwing up the entire thing. Everybody in Delhi can afford a car now. And what happens during the summer vacations? Everybody thinks, oh, let me go take my family, go for a drive. The Himalayas cannot take that thing. We saw from our own eyes that people were throwing plastic around and who's there to collect it? Nobody's there in the mountains to collect the plastic. Somewhere in Dharchila we should stop the people from taking plastic up. Okay, if you're taking 10 plastics, then you pay us 1000 and when you get these 10 plastics back, we return you the money. It's like a security deposit.
2: So tell me about the the experience of water then uh, for the communities of the Himalayas and how is that a valuable resource which uh, is up there in its cleanest form, I suppose. How is that valuable to the community?
0: Water obviously is extremely, extremely important. It's valuable. In certain places, people even pray to it. As far as for the Himalayas is concerned, this time in Dharachala, people didn't get water in their own homes. The taps didn't have the water. So water tankers were coming to Dharachala to supply water to the local people, while the river is just nearby. Believe it or not, that river water, it's going to other places in UP and Delhi. While we were walking over there, I was about to cross a bridge. I met an engineer. I started asking him questions like I heard that there's a dam being built and he was like, yes. And talking about how many megawatts and everything. And I was like, where is this water going to go? Like, what is this being used for? He said it's for the electricity, which will be supplied to another state. And I said, how can this be possible? And later on, I asked from people and they told me that the earlier minister, when he signed it, he signed it for the other states. So that is still continuing on. And we're talking about the previous ministers. So I don't know who to blame for that. But the main concern is this. Apparently, two, three villages will have to be submerged if they feel that it's possible to build a dam. But if it's not possible to build a dam over there, then those villages don't get submerged. Maybe some other village might get submerged. Mm -hmm. So that is the bottom line is they need the water. And as everybody knows, the next world war is not going to be for land. It's going to be for water.
4: I hear it a lot that the next wars are going to be fought over water rather than territory. And look, it might end up being the case, but there's a lot of steps down the road that have to occur before that happens. This is Dr Alexander Davis, a lecturer in international relations at the University of Western Australia. When you say that the next wars are going to be fought over water, this... Securitizes the water. This securitizes the environment. The state tends to respond with the military and so in order to secure your water you build dams and send the military up to defend them or protect them. So if that becomes the way water is seen then there probably will be wars fought over water. So lots of these states have border conflicts and that's one of the key issues that means that there's very little international cooperation over environment and culture in the Himalaya. So India and China have significant border conflicts in um, the Western Himalaya, in Ladakh and Kashmir. Uh, They also have border conflicts in Arunachal Pradesh, which the Chinese state refers to on its maps as South Tibet. India and Nepal have small border conflicts. Uh, India and Pakistan obviously have conflicts over Kashmir, which I'm sure all of your listeners would would already be familiar with. What people don't often take into account when they're talking
2: about these sort of environments is it's not just conflict over a dotted line on the map. You're also talking about altitude. It's a very variable environment.
4: Yeah, it's an extremely difficult environment. You occasionally see in sort of Indian political discourse you know, a sense of pride over taking part in the highest battlefields in the world, which is somewhat depressing for someone who's concerned about the environment. There's a common theme in analyses of the Himalaya and maps of the Himalaya in particular. They're presented as this flat map with just contested lines and a lot of international relations analysis and even analysis that comes out of sort of state-backed think tanks by India and China that talks about it as though it were flat. But actually what you have is incredibly difficult to access terrain and most of the contested borders are actually on the ice pack which makes it particularly difficult and dangerous so militarizing the ice pack because india china pakistan can't agree on where they begin and end is something that has a lot of effects on local people it transforms local cultures and it leads to um, a great deal of infrastructure development on the ice pack.
2: Can you tell me some specifics about that? Because development would follow the military. The military needs infrastructure, they need roads, they need electricity, they need housing for the soldiers. Tell me what sort of effect that has on the Himalayas and the environment.
4: One good example is probably Ladakh, which is a disputed territory. It's claimed by Pakistan and parts of it are claimed by China. It's known as the highest battlefield in the world, particularly the Siachen Glacier. Mm So on the Indian side of the border, infrastructure development is done by the army. It's done by something called the Border Roads Organisation. They tend to do infrastructure development to facilitate the movement of troops. And they also do connect local communities as a result of that. A lot of the people up there are worried that their culture may not survive as a result of the high influx of troops and tourists. And so they get money out of it. Troops and tourists need guest houses, they need food, they need water, but there are all kinds of environmental effects associated with this as well. So, with the environmental impact of
2: the militarisation
4: of the Himalayas,
2: what do you think it would take to get the environment back to a place where it's going to be more productive and we can be less concerned about diminishing the resources?
4: Well, there are two key reasons that the environment in the Himalaya is suffering. The first is global, it's that all states most states aren't doing enough to deal with climate change and that rising global temperatures is contributing to melting the ice pack the other reason is, is black carbon and militarization so it's l- things that happen locally in the himalaya themselves we'll need to see a massive increase in cooperation and environmental sensitivity of all the state actors who are sending troops and tourists to the mountain so we need to see environmental protocols enacted in the short term things like green confidence-building measures between the Indian, Chinese and Pakistani armies, so that they can begin to build the kind of cooperation that's necessary to save the region's environment. Over the longer term, we're probably going to need to see the demilitarisation of the Himalayan ice pack, and that's not something that's easy to see in the short term, unfortunately. There will need to be built some kind of intergovernmental architecture or international organisation that can if not necessarily solve the border conflicts or resolve them, but can enable the different armies in the region, the different state actors in the region, to agree that it's not worth militarising the ice pack. Seeing water as something that needs to be secured is ultimately a bad idea that will result in losses of water for everyone. The Himalayas are sometimes
2: referred to the third pole of the earth, mainly because I suppose it's covered in snow like the other two poles. But when you look at how those territories are managed, they're managed by an international body almost with all countries who are concerned working in collaboration, or at least respecting each other's divisions. Do you think that's the sort of arrangement that will benefit the Himalayas?
4: I think it needs to be built from the ground up. I don't think India or China or Pakistan would take kindly to the United Nations or the US or the European Union or Australia advocating for this. It needs to come from the people who are there. The people who live near the ice pack are the ones who know the most about it and how to manage it. A lot of them are concerned about the environment. We need to see some kind of structure come from the region, from both the states and the sort of local administrations in the region, towards sustainable management of the ice pack so environmental governance needs to incorporate indigenous voices and scientific expertise as well and that's what you see in the arctic and the antarctic and their governance structures
5: my name is charisma lepcha i am an assistant professor teaching in the department of anthropology sikkim university Uh, lepchas are the indigenous people believe in their imagined homeland as something called Maya Liang, which uh, is now found in territories of Sikkim, Darjeeling, Mm. Eastern Nepal and Bhutan. In 2007, Lepcha started this uh, indefinite hunger strike because the government of Sikkim was allotted 26 dams and of that, Six of them were supposed to be built in the Lepcha Reserve. The reserve area is actually set aside for the Lepcha community in North Sikkim. Mm. When these dams were set up, it was the young people who had had their education in Gantok or Kolkata, saving their homeland, the ancestral land, and government still goes ahead, so four dams, people were very divided because if you are anti-DAM meant you are anti sikimis mm. So that's how the government framed their narrative as you know so even the Gantok Club just nobody actually initially spoke against the DAM. So it was just a handful of youth that was leading this non-violent resistance movement. There were two guys who started off as these protesters. This is, uh, one is a football player and one's a filmmaker. Mm. They were in hunger strike until about 64 days or so they were not not really eating anything so they had bone dry almost then comes they were fed with riles tube there's just water and for about 64 days also no one from the government had even come in this whole process of about 900 days of indefinite strike four of them get scrapped
2: four of the dams get scrapped
5: right the rest of the dams are still there these dams are inside dongu and that has again caused a lot of flash floods, a lot of landslides. It should have been a Sikkim issue, but the government made it a lepcha issue. So the ones being- So the dams lepcha are
2: controversial, but the damage oil, is caused oil, on a local oil, level, and the power generated pollution. flows across the plains to the cities. Ruth Gamble. The Himalaya rivers fall very
1: fast right and hydropower works on the idea that you can make water fall fast and turn turbines the turbines make electricity that's the basic physics behind it there is hydropower potential all over the himalaya all of the nation states in the region have not been really able to exploit it to its greatest extent because they didn't have the technology and they think they have the technology at the moment but i would argue they don't have it they don't have technology that's sustainable or they're not using the technology that's available that's sustainable in some ways there's different levels of competition between the different states of the Himalaya about dam building. One of those is this idea of who can develop first and who can make things nicer for the people, which they're doing without thinking about the consequences of. So China is super efficient at dam building. They have a massive dam building industry. And so they've built cascading dams down the Yalongtangpur River already and they're building massive cascading infrastructure along the Yangtze River and the Mekong, upper reaches the Mekong, which is affecting all of the downstream uh, countries from there. And India's probably better in that they're not better, if you know what I mean. They've struggled to build as many dams. But one of the places they're building a lot of dams is Sikkim. Build one, it doesn't work, so they'll think they'll make it better by building others. I don't know if people from the region will say it, but there's lots of people getting kickbacks for the rivers, so there's an incentive for locals to... Um, be involved in the dam building industry.
2: Okay, I feel like because this cloud's coming up rather quickly, we should go down now sure. because I don't know if ABC Radio National would like me falling off the side yeah, of we a need mountain. Yeah, you
1: off the mountain. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're at 4,020 metres above sea level.
2: There we go. This is Matt Smith, and you're listening to Future Tense on ABC Radio National. Hello, Ruth. Hi. How are you going? Good. Now that we're back on a lower altitude.
1: Yes. A
2: month later, Ruth rejoins me in a pod booth in Melbourne to discuss some of the possible solutions for the Himalaya. I spoke on on these sort of topics. We were up the top of a mountain in Sikkim, Mm -hmm. but we got to the point where there was so much cloud cover and it was getting so late in the day that the military essentially followed us down the mountain and said, get out, guys. You've had enough up there. Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) They closed that road off mm. at a certain point. You're only allowed to go up one way and down another.
2: yeah. We didn't get the chance to talk about possible solutions and what the different countries of the Himalayas could be doing and what they are doing, I suppose, in order to better handle the environment.
1: Part of the thing about the Himalaya is that it's so varied as you go across it from one valley to another, that big picture perspectives can be
2: problematic. So you don't get consistency in how they're managing these environments?
1: Well, they try and be consistent. But you can't be consistent. If you make a rule that's consistent across the entire region, uh, then one valley that's north-facing will have lower
2: temperatures and south-facing will have a warmer temperature. Right. And you don't have coordination between all these different people who are working in different areas, so they're being ineffective that way, I guess? Yeah. So
1: what you need is local knowledge in order to be able to react to very different local environments. Mm -hmm. What you've got is large states who don't have local knowledge of the mountains run this place and treating it as a borderland mm-hmm. as opposed to getting local indigenous knowledge and implement policies and approaches uh, that will be gentler and more sustainable in the mountains.
2: Right, so the decisions are being made in the wrong places. The decisions
1: are being made in the wrong places and with the wrong structures. They're being made by states interested in security and militarization as opposed to local groups. Yep. When you do have local groups you get a different perspective. Such get. as? So for example Isimod is the international Centre for Integrated Mountain Development. And so they're an interesting group because they are sponsored by international agencies, have links to the United Nations. They're sponsored by the governments of the region, but they uh, work between those governments and local groups and scientists. So it's a, it's actually a, like a really good model. It works between the different spaces and across international borders. So it sounds like a good sort
2: of model, but it didn't need a bit of clout.
1: Yeah. So what ISIMOD's actually doing is is acting as a transnational information supplier Mm. and say, oh, you know, these people over here in uh, Western Tibet, they have figured out a way to adapt to climate change by um, moving vegetables up the hill a bit more, right? Mm. And then they take that idea and they take it down to Nepal.
2: I guess the consensus for the wider world, for the Western world is this is between those countries, India, China, Bhutan etc
1: Nepal Pakistan
2: yeah yeah etc is quite <laughs> inclusive there <laughs> this is your problem to solve and you don't need us in there but what could institutions like the UN? be doing differently because they're giving a lot of funding for these green dams, aren't they?
1: I think given the general state of the world, you have to recognize a couple of things. First of all, these nations are claiming sovereignty over uh, this region and and according to the international norms respect that, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the first thing. And then, I mean, I'd say even above that. I hope I don't get into trouble for saying this, but even above that, you would respect the local group's connection to the land, their knowledge of those places and the generational wisdom that they have in, in regards to how to live in those spaces. What happens in the Himalaya doesn't stay in the Himalaya. Anything that happens there affects everybody downstream. Because half of humanity lives downstream, it affects the world. Mm. right? So the, the world needs to uh, think about the implications of things that they set up for other places being played out in the Himalaya. One of the biggest of these is the clean development mechanism, which has been set up so that rich countries can pay for poor countries to develop clean energy, mainly. But the way that that's been used and being twisted is particularly in the Himalaya, is they've funneled it all into hydropower projects. Mm. The thing is, that's Paying off clean energy against ecological destruction. So the more dams you have, the more wrecked the rivers get, the less the air ecosystems work, the hydrological systems stop working, uh, the silt doesn't make it down to the farmers on the plains. It's almost as if there's like an unintended consequence. There's a lot of people in the world that don't think that
2: hydropower is clean power. Mm. So with everything going on in the Himalayas, then, are you are you worried about how it might be in the future?
1: The thing is, when you think about the Himalaya, you've got to think about time, right? It's only existed for 60 million years. Youngest mountains on the planet, that's why they're so high. Mm. But 60 million years is longer than us. So I think the Himalaya is going to outlive humans. We're not going to do anything to the mountains themselves. It's like how we can live in, in harmony or how we can live continuously with those mountains. And the two things that we basically need is water and food. It's pretty basic. The Chinese use the expression, the water towers of Asia. Most of the time, you protect your watersheds, you protect where you get your water from. It's it's like basic uh, human survival strategy. Mm-hmm. It, the only problem in the Himalaya is it's so big, and if we wreck them, we're not going to have it, right? Mm-hmm. So we will disappear, and the Himalaya will go
2: on. Ruth Gamble from La Trobe University with the message that if we want to keep using the Himalayas, then it's our responsibility to take care of it. But for our sake, not its. That's it this week for Future Tense, and my thanks to Anthony Fennell and Karen Zivanovic for letting me keep the seat warm. I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.